Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which, as we wait to see if Trump will ever be indicted for any of his many, many, many crimes, we take a look at the long and illustrious history of powerful people avoiding prosecution in the United States. Clips today are from Pitchfork Economics, Democracy Now!, The Majority Report, This Week, Reveal, Cape Up, and MSNBC, with additional members-only clips from the U.S. National Archives and PBS NewsHour. We basically set out to find out why aren't rich people going to jail anymore? Why does this feel like there's this avalanche of what's known as elite deviance in the academic literature, and yet elites aren't going to jail the way that they used to be? Hmm. And when I was talking about this with my editor, he said, you know, I, I really want to get the sense of, you know, the cat and mouse game, this kind of catch me if you can, chasing criminals across the world, moving money around. And then the minute I started looking into this, the first thing that I found was that there there kind of isn't a cat and mouse game. Hmm. And what it really requires to bust rich people, the most damaging form of crime we have in this country, is just the blunt application of resources. Hmm. And it's just something we don't dedicate resources to anymore. Hmm. It's something that we know where to look for it. We know exactly the forms that it's taking. We know how to get money back from the Bahamas. But it just takes months of work, and yeah. we're not willing to invest in it anymore. Yeah. So that's a boring answer, but it's the true one. Huh. What do you think – first of all, can you track when you think this new age – I mean, you call it the kind of the golden age of impunity, <laughs> um, where wealth, the very wealthy, very powerful are able to commit really – you point out a lot of financial crimes, but mm -hmm. we can also look at other types of crimes that they're committing. I mean, obviously, Epstein is in the news, and he's committing these crimes mm -hmm. over a long period of time without real consequence yeah. until very recently. And um, there is this kind of age of impunity. What do you? When do you track it back to? If you had a like backcast, well, there's a couple layers to this. So the the impetus, the most obvious finding that we began the story with was this idea that there are now fewer white collar prosecutions than when then at any time since we started tracking them huh. since researchers started looking into this in the 1990s we now audit only about three percent of millionaires how about that we have it's in the triple digits somewhere the number of white collar prosecutions and so this is something that you know the the easiest way to illustrate this is that for the savings and loan scandal in 1989, 700 people were convicted. Wow. For Enron in 2001, about 40 people were convicted. And then for the financial crisis in 2008, one person was convicted. And so there's a very clear sort of line downward of just how much interest we have in this anymore. But what's really interesting is that this is it's really a nesting doll type of catastrophe. Mm -hmm. So the first layer of it is just we're doing fewer white collar prosecutions. But the second layer of it is really that white collar is not a very accurate term. Hmm. Because when you start looking into this, what you find is that most of the white collar prosecutions, I'm making air quotes, yeah. are actually low level stuff. It's like identity theft. I read somewhere hmm. that four out of five people convicted of embezzlement made less than $10,000 a year before they were convicted. Wow. You know, it's, it's middle managers using the company credit card to buy themselves an iPhone. It's not, you know, high level wow. Enron banker securities fraud stuff. And you point out in the piece that this is partially due to if the, in, the statistics around white collar crime yeah. are inflated. So if, if you're reading the statistics, you might assume, oh, we're actually prosecuting quite a lot of white collar mm. crime. But it turns out what we're prosecuting are these relatively minor yeah. players for these kind of minor crimes. And meanwhile, the uber wealthy committing really egregious tax evasion yeah. or other types of uh, fraud or abuse are getting away with it. Yeah, I mean, the, the most damaging forms of crime are those committed by the powerful. I mean, if you look at something like the Flint water crisis, that's 100% yeah. done by elites. You look at something like the opioid crisis. You look at something like Enron jacking up the prices of energy by faking all these blackouts in California and the price of energy spiked by, I believe, eight times in California. I mean, these are huge effects on people's lives. And yet our entire system of criminal justice is really meant to go after bad apples. That's, you know, it's bad people working with its individuals working 
with no institutional support. But then the way that one researcher put it to me was we can't go after bad orchards when there's entire organizations Hmm. that are acting terribly like, you know, the Catholic Church or like Goldman Sachs or one of these other big financial firms in the financial crisis. It's really impossible for the criminal justice system to pluck any single person out of that Hmm. and say you were doing wrong because the responsibility is so diffuse across the organization Hmm. that it is almost seen as unfair to say, well, this one person was at the heart of it because you can't really prove it. So it's difficult to track to when, but we know that over time, and I thought that was an incredible outline, what you're going from hundreds of prosecutions to dozens of prosecutions to one prosecution. <laughs> and really, um, so so we know that it's declined. And you interrelated in the piece with the fact that we have really deprioritized this as a government, like our yeah. federal government in particular, although I assume that this is also trackable at the state level, th- it takes really time and resources. It's not yeah. a, it's not a game of clue or catch me if it can. It's actually just really like hard drudgery work that takes real yeah. human time and capital and purpose and attention by these agencies. And that's just been wiped out. Yeah. I mean, what the pattern that has repeated itself over and over again since the 1980s is you have these regulation agencies that are supposed to be looking into, you know, polluting in the rivers or toys that are going to kill us or these kinds of background risks to the population. And what happens is these agencies, when Republicans are in government, they cut their budgets. And then when Democrats are in government, they increase the amount they want those organizations to do. So over time, you have fewer and fewer resources and more and more obligations. Hmm. And so what this does is it adds up to this thing where every time a scandal reveals how weak these organizations are, Congress steps in and makes it worse. So, you know, after Enron, for example, we passed Sarbanes-Oxley that puts all of these extra obligations on the SEC, all this. They have to review tons more companies, trillions more in assets, and they get, I believe it was like 200 more inspectors. So it's like they're asked to do twice as much and 10% more staff. And then by the time we get to the financial crisis, again, Congress says, well, you were asleep at the wheel. Why weren't you doing this? And then they come in, they pass Dodd-Frank, which again gives the agency way more to do. And then they again give them like 5% more staff. And so we've just set ourselves up for the same thing to happen again, because we're only going back and correcting the mistakes of 20 years ago, rather than bringing these agencies up to where they need to be now. We end today's show in Michigan, where on Tuesday, the state Supreme Court threw out charges against Republican former Governor Rick Snyder, his former health director, and seven other former officials for their role in the deadly Flint water crisis. The court ruled unanimously the judge who issued the indictments lacked authority to do so because he acted as a, quote, one-person grand jury. Judge Richard Bernstein wrote in a concurring opinion, quote, the Flint water crisis stands as one of this country's greatest betrayals of citizens by their government. Yet the prosecution of these defendants must adhere to proper procedural requirements because of the magnitude of the harm that was done to Flint residents, unquote. Michigan Solicitor General Fadla Hamoud, who helped lead the Flint prosecution, said, quote, these cases are not over and vowed to prove the allegations in court. In 2014, Flint's unelected emergency manager, appointed by Governor Snyder, switched the city's water supply from the Detroit system, which Flint had been using for half a century, to the corrosive Flint River as a cost-saving measure. Soon after, Flint residents complained about discolored, foul-smelling water. First, the water was infested with bacteria. To treat the bacteria, the city poured in chlorine, which created a cancerous chemical byproducts, then a deadly outbreak of Legionnaire's disease, which is caused by a waterborne bacteria spread through Flint, killing 12 people, sickening dozens, one of the largest recorded outbreaks in U.S. history. The change in Flint's water supply also caused widespread lead poisoning in residents, particularly children in the majority black city. Neera, let's start with you. Your response to the throwing out of the conviction of the governor of Michigan and his officials. Yes, I mean— This is the second time for some of these officials of being charged. And it really feels like the illusion, like justice is 
becoming an illusion for Flint residents. talk about, could you also respond to this and speak specifically about the role of Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel? I mean, this really feels like a slap in the face because she ran on a platform that she was going to bring justice to Flint residents. And, you know, like less than six months of her taking office, like the charges against folks were being dropped. And it took almost, it took over a year for the next set of charges to be brought up. And now this is being dismissed. And it's really offensive because one of the other things I wanted to lift up is even though the Supreme Court said that this one person grand jury is unusual I mean, it's pretty common, like in, in poor communities within Michigan, there are dozens of cases right now, the active cases that went through a one person grand jury. So it really feels like there is one uh, a justice system for poor residents, um, including like uh, residents in Genesee County and another justice system if you're the former governor or department head for the state of Michigan. Let's bring Melissa Mays into the conversation. You're in Flint right now. You and Nair were really the leaders at the time, at the height of the poisoning, whether we're talking about Legionnaire's disease or we're talking about the lead poisoning of children. Melissa, lay out the scope of the problem. What happened in Flint? Well, listening to our interviews from six years ago, not a lot's changed. Basically, the state still making all of the decisions for us. They're making the decisions about us without us. They have not even finished replacing our service lines. Um, and with our federal lawsuit, our State Drinking Water Act lawsuit, this should have been done by 2020. But here we are dragging it out because the state's doing everything they can to avoid paying things. And actually, Flint Rising right now is going to an additional 1,419 homes that the city and state never even reached out to to get their pipes replaced. So that's still going on. People still don't have health care. We are still having to get people proper information. So again, the state has also spent tens of millions of dollars of our tax money to avoid justice, to drag out the civil cases, to drag out the criminal cases. And again, three years ago, almost to the day, Attorney General um, Dana Nessel threw out all of the criminal cases that had been built for three years prior to that. And many of those were actually moving forward to trial for manslaughter, actual serious charges. But she tossed them out with no good reason, political issues, I guess. But again, this isn't a political issue. This is a human rights issue. We're day 2,988 now without clean and safe water in Flint. And no one is being held accountable. No one is seeing justice. No one is seeing reparations in Flint. Our homes, our bodies, our lives are still damaged and destroyed, and the people responsible are getting away with it because, like Nayara said, they have uh, rich white folk and government heads have a whole different justice system than the rest of us. Now, Nayira, the Michigan Supreme Court threw out—and I, I said before the convictions, it's the indictments against the governor and a number of his aides for the deadly Flint, Michigan, water crisis. Court ruling 6-0, to zero, the judge who issued the indictments did not have the authority to do so. That doesn't mean that this case is thrown out, that it was just done procedurally wrong. So how do you move ahead? On the one hand, holding these officials accountable up to the governor, and and then how you move ahead with dealing with this crisis today. I mean, the talking about the lead poisoning of the children of Flint, a majority black city, what this means for the future. And ultimately, you've called this actually a crisis of democracy, because Snyder empowered unelected town managers that he put in place in mainly black cities of Michigan to run your city and others. Yes. Well, you know, like when the Supreme Court like voided like those indictments, it was really like a slap in the face. It just really felt like, you know, like when are we going to actually receive justice? And in the eyes of, of many Flint residents, justice for them isn't getting their lead service line replaced. It's actually seeing someone convicted and going to jail for poisoning 100,000 um, Flint residents. And then also, unfortunately, the systems that created uh, Michigan's emergency manager law is still on the books. So this is something that is going to be ongoing and we have to continue to fight in the streets for justice that we deserve. 
The United States Department of Justice requested that George W. Bush, Richard Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld, Colin Powell, Condoleezza Rice, and Paul Wolfowitz be granted procedural immunity in a case that alleged that they planned and waged the Iraq war in violation of international law. This, um, this motion was filed in a case wherein a, an Iraqi mother and refugee now living in Jordan filed a complaint earlier this year in San Francisco federal court where she alleged that the planning and waging of the war constituted a quote crime of aggression against Iraq. It's a legal theory that was used uh, by the Nuremberg Tribunal. Quote, the DOJ claims that in planning and waging the Iraq war, ex-president Bush and key members of administration were acting within the legitimate scope of their employment and are thus immune from suit. Chief counsel uh, Indar Komar of Komar Law said this is they are filing this motion uh, pursuant to the Westfall Act certification of 1988, which permits the attorney general at his or her discretion. In other words, they don't have to do this to substitute the United States as a defendant and essentially grant absolute immunity to government employees in the lawsuit. Sundas Sala alleges that Richard Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld, Paul Wolfowitz began planning for the Iraq War in 1998 through their involvement with the Project for the New American Century. Once they came to power, she alleges that Cheney, Rumsfeld, Wolfowitz convinced other Bush officials to invade Iraq by using 9-11 as an excuse to mislead and scare the American public into supporting a war. She claims that the United States failed to obtain United Nations approval prior to the invasion, rendering the invasion illegal and an act of impermissible aggression. Her attorneys say they do not see how the Westfall Act could apply here because the planning and the conduct at issue began prior to these defendants entering into office. But um, good for the Obama administration for, you know, letting bygones be bygones. The most popular question on your own website is related to this uh, on change.gov. It comes from Bob Furtick of New York City, and he asks, will you appoint a special prosecutor, ideally Patrick Fitzgerald, to independently investigate the gravest crimes of the Bush administration, including torture and warrantless wiretapping? Um, we're still evaluating how we are going to uh, approach the whole issue of uh, interrogations, detentions, uh, and so forth. Uh, and obviously we're going to be looking at past practices. Uh, and uh, I don't believe that anybody is above the law. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I also have a belief that we need to look forward as, low, as opposed to look, looking backwards. Uh, and part of my job is to make sure that, uh, for example, at the CIA, uh, you've got extraordinarily talented people who are working very hard to keep Americans safe uh, I don't want them to suddenly feel like they've got to spend all their time uh, wor looking over their shoulders and, and lawyering. So no 9-11 commission with independent subpoena power? You know, we have not made final decisions, but my instinct is for us to focus on how do we make sure that moving forward uh, we are doing the right thing. Uh, that doesn't mean that uh, if somebody has blatantly broken the law that they are above the law. But my orientation is going to be to move forward. So, so let me just press that one more time. You're not ruling out prosecution, but will you tell your Justice Department to investigate these cases and follow the evidence wherever it leads? What I, I think my general view when it comes to my attorney general is he's the people's lawyer. Uh, Eric Holder's been nominated. His job is to uphold the Constitution and look after the interests of the American people, not to be swayed by my day-to-day -day politics. Uh, so ultimately, he's going to be making some calls. But my general belief is that when it comes to national security, what we have to focus on is getting things right uh, in the future as opposed to uh, looking at what we got wrong in the past. You know, you mentioned Eric Holt.
Greg Grandin, I'm wondering your assessment of the impact of the Panama invasion on the Bush presidency, because he was always battling criticism that he was a wimp, that he, he was not fit to be president, and how this affected him. Well, he was. He was he was constantly uh, fighting the image of being a wimp and ineffectual, living in the shadow of, of Ronald Reagan. He was called Reagan's lapdog. He had a long history of violence in the third world, starting back from his days in West Texas with Zapata Oil Company. He was involved with the CIA, which they helped run logistics to the Bay of Pigs. He, as head of the CIA, he, he presided over the head of the CIA in 1976 during the height of Operation Condor, which kind of organized national death squads in Latin America into and in, in coordinated their activity. The single largest run of bombings and executions carried out by Condor happened on while Bush was the head of the CIA, Iran-Contra as vice president. And so Panama— And when you so, say Iran-Contra, just if you could <laughs> expand on that, especially for young people well, who don't understand what this was. Iran-Contra was a many-hydra-headed scandal that involved selling high-tech weaponry to Iran, diverting the profits to support the anti-communist Contras in Nicaragua and Central America. In violation of U.S. In law. In violation of U.S. law, but also— so it meant, it, my gesture to it meant that it supported the worst kind of, of death squatters and assassins and fascists in Central America throughout the 1980s. And Bush was deeply involved in that as vice president and coming out of his work with the CIA. So my point and, and to the leader of Panama yeah. is that Bush had a long history of violence in the third world as a way of establishing himself, which obviously continued with the first Gulf War. And uh, a key part of that Iran-Contra is that once Bush becomes president, he pardons all the people who were involved with <laughs> No, not once he becomes president, when he's leaving. When after he's leaving, he's defeated, when he's leaving, yeah, when he's leaving he's as president. by Clinton in the Christmas Eve 1992. He pardoned six of them. And uh, Lawrence Walsh, the independent prosecutor, says that this completes the cover-up of Iran-Contra. So in some ways, it's a precedent for current politics in terms of the limits and limitlessness of, of presidential power to sweep scandals that they're involved in under the rug. Now, President Bush defended his decision to issue the pardons. He issued a statement saying, in part, first, the common denominator of their motivation, whether their actions were right or wrong, was patriotism. Second, they did not profit or seek to profit from their conduct. Third, each has a record of long and distinguished service to this country. This is Caspar Weinberger, former Secretary of Defense for the Reagan administration, speaking shortly after he was pardoned by George H.W. Bush. I'm completely confident that I would have been uh, acquitted in a real trial uh, when uh, I and my real attorneys, Bob Bennett and Carl Rao, who are, I think, the finest in the country, uh, would be participants, and uh, they would present real evidence to a real jury. I am very pleased, however, and very relieved that my family and I have been spared this terrible ordeal of a very long and unjustified trial. Now, Lawrence Walsh, who is so utterly frustrated by this, said this was the decapitation of the investigation. He had come out of the Eisenhower administration, actually. Talk about—this was Casper Weinberger um, and the other defendants who had their records wiped clean. And records right clean, and, the, and the scandal went down the memory hole. Iran-Contra was consequential in the sense that it brought together a lot of the different coalitions that made up the Reagan administration, the evangelical right, the neoconservatives, the the, the militarists, and anti-communists, and they, and they gave them Central America to run wild with, basically funding the Contras, which were the anti-communist insurgencies seeking to overthrow the Sandinistas. Michael Isikoff wrote in 1991, the Medellin Cartel, once branded by U.S. officials as the world's most violent and powerful drug trafficking organization, made a $10 million contribution to the U.S.-backed Contra guerrillas fighting during the 80s to overthrow Nicaragua's Sandinista government, a former cartel leader testified. Today. Yeah, I might be wrong, but I think they routed that through Manuel, Manuel Noriega. That's how it got to the Contras. <laughs> so it brought together all of the worst elements. But the, the 
larger point, it's all part of the overcoming the Vietnam syndrome. It's all about the executive branch figuring out how it can reassert and project military power free from all of this democratic oversight that Congress had prohibited aid to the Contras. And that was the main kind of prompt that forced the Reagan administration and to figure out. And the main operation all. run through Vice President George H.W. Bush's office. And Oliver North and an interwar party. Oliver North was the point person. He was, you know, so that, that was, and, and so that's Bush's legacy. I always try to get past the Watergate break-in as quickly as possible <laughs> because it's just the tip of the iceberg. The tip of the iceberg that ultimately revealed how Nixon was involved in political conspiracy, sabotage, and obstruction of justice. A lot of the evidence came from the famous Nixon tapes. Richard Nixon uh, was cursed and blessed with um, kind of omnipresent taping in the Oval Office and various other White House locations. Nixon's secret recordings were a goldmine for the House Judiciary Committee, which used some of them to build an obstruction of justice case against the president. But Ken was convinced he could find even more examples of abuses of power. So when the National Archives released the tape in bulk, he did some digging. This is Conversation 437-19. It's hard to hear, but it's a pardons bombshell. It's 1973, and Nixon is talking to White House Chief of Staff H.R. Haldeman. The Watergate cover-up is collapsing, and the president is trying to shield himself. In one part, Nixon says, there's nothing more important than to keep me in this effing office. The ace of Nixon's sleeve is the pardon power. Nixon tells Haldeman, that if he can bury the trail connecting him to Watergate, it's pardons all around. He says, I don't give a what comes out on you. There's going to be a total pardon. Now, this promise, which I found back in the 1990s when I was going through the tapes on my own, uh, had never come to light during the Watergate hearings. And it would have been all by itself an impeachable offense. What is Nixon telling his staff and the people that may have committed illegal acts uh, about pardons? What is he talking to them about? The president was telling his top aides, who are also his co-conspirators in obstruction of justice, that they could commit perjury before the Senate Watergate Committee and count on a pardon from the president. He was basically abusing his pardon power, perverting his pardon power, uh, as a get-out-of-jail-free card, uh, a way to put himself above the law. With Trump, we're not going to need secret tapes to prove that he dangled the possibility of pardons over the heads of key witnesses against him. That's because, this time, it's being talked about in the open. Here's Trump's lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, being interviewed on CNN. You said, I think this may get cleaned up, this probe, with a few pardons. These things get cleaned up. Uh, Ford did it, Reagan did it, Carter did it, Clinton did it, and Bush did it in political investigations. So you're saying after the probe is over, it may be cleaned up with any pardons? If people were unfairly prosecuted. In Richard Nixon's case, he never got to grant those pardons. A year after that conversation with his chief of staff, his presidency was crumbling. Uh, there had been a vote by the grand jury to characterize Nixon as an unindicted co-conspirator in obstruction of justice. Dan Coble is a professor of law at Capital University in Ohio. Dan says in the final days of Nixon's presidency, White House aides are starting to think about the president's exit strategy. This is when Nixon goes from being the person who grants pardons to someone who could benefit from one. The first mention of a pardon for Nixon comes on August 1st, when Secretary of State Al Haig calls a meeting with the Vice President Gerald Ford. Now you have to remember, this is Ford as Vice President, who has no role in pardons at all. And so he's got Haig giving him a handwritten document that says 
that a president can pardon prior to indictment in the federal system. Haig spells out a few options, and he tells Ford that the president could pardon himself or be pardoned by his successor. Ford is surprised by this, and for good reason. It's the first time a U.S. president has ever tested the waters of pardoning himself. But it never comes to that. Instead, on August 8th, 1974. Good evening. This is the 37th time I have spoken to you from this office. Facing possible impeachment, Richard Nixon resigns. Therefore, I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. Vice President Ford will be sworn in as president at that hour in this office. Ford becomes president and he's eager to put Nixon behind him. My fellow Americans, our long national nightmare is over. He wants to get to work on problems his administration has inherited. Unemployment, high inflation, and a domestic energy crisis. But the country is still obsessed with Watergate. And the public wants to know what will happen to Nixon. Almost a month into his presidency, Ford does what he never imagined doing. Serious allegations and accusations hang like a sword over our former president's head. He pardons Nixon. To the pardon power conferred upon me by the Constitution. Have granted, and by these presents do grant, a full, free, and absolute pardon unto Richard Nixon for all offenses against the United States, which he... Years later, as a law professor writing about clemency, Dan saw this move as the most constitutionally significant pardon in U.S. history. And he thought, wouldn't it be cool to ask Ford why, in the end, he decided to do it? Hello. Good, good afternoon, President Ford. This is Dan Coble, professor at Capital Law School. This is the first time this 2001 interview has ever been made public. Yes, nice talking to you, Dan. Nice talking to you. Thank you. For Ford says when he first came into office, he wasn't leaning towards pardoning Nixon. Then came his first presidential press conference on August 28, 1974. Please sit down. Good afternoon. At the outset, I have a very he felt that. The country had a number of significant economic problems, foreign policy problems. Would you use your pardon authority if necessary? And yet the only questions that the press seemed to be interested in, in his view, pertain to what will happen to Richard Nixon. May I just follow up on uh, Helen's question? Are you saying, sir, that... The option of a pardon for former President Nixon is still an option that you will consider depending on what the courts will do. Of course, I make the final decision. Uh, and, uh, well, as I returned from that press conference where I was convinced that uh, the only way to solve the problem was to think about granting a pardon. And that's your first press conference where you had several pardon questions. I had many pardon questions. Yeah. And uh, so I went back to the Oval Office, and as I recall, I asked Phil Buchan. Phil Buchan was a chief White House lawyer. To explore my authority in the first place. Mm -hmm. uh, And to report back to me because I was very frank. I was considering uh, the possibility, providing it would achieve what I thought was necessary, getting Mr. Nixon's problems off my desk. So that press conference really triggered your your realistic consideration of it right off the bat, huh? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was dismayed that the press was so preoccupied with that that uh, I could visualize that every press conference that followed for the next X number of months would be the same. And I thought that was uh, unfortunate from the country's point of view. Ford was in a bind. The public wanted a resolution. Nixon was threatening to plead not guilty if he was prosecuted, promising to drag a messy trial through the courts. 
President Gerald R. Ford summoned newsmen to the White House suddenly this Sunday morning and announced that he was granting a full, free, and absolute pardon to former President Richard M. Now, you've been quoted as calling the pardon decision the most difficult of my life ever. I, I had a, a visceral feeling that the public animosity to Mr. Nixon uh, was so great that there would be a lack of understanding. And... Uh, the truth is that's the way it turned out. The public and many leaders, including dear friends, didn't understand it at the time. His very dear friend, who had been his press secretary for years, resigned when he granted the pardon to Nixon. He asked him not to resign, but the day that he did that, he said, I cannot work for you any longer, and he resigned. And that was a huge personal loss to Ford. So he got tremendous pushback, I think, for having granted the pardon. Do you think he expected that? I mean, it's such a controversial decision, even looking back now. I mean, did Ford understand the consequences of that decision? He knew that there were so many people who hated Richard Nixon who would never forgive him for pardoning him. He suggested that he wanted to grant the pardon quickly because it was like ripping a bandage off a wound. Better to do it quickly and get the pain out at once rather than do it slowly or drag it out And the outcry wasn't because of the pardon alone. Uh, I was criticized uh, that I didn't get uh, an admission by President Nixon that he was an error and uh, so forth. But Ford didn't look at it that way. One of the very interesting personal facts about Ford is that he, for the rest of his life, kept in his wallet a page from an opinion of the Supreme Court in a case called Burdick versus United States. I have the card in my pocket, which I carry with me. Uh, let me try to find it here. Is that the Burdick case? The justices found that a pardon, quote, carries an imputation of guilt, comma, acceptance, comma, a confession of it, end quote. Mm -hmm. uh, so whether Nixon uh, agreed to the pardon, the fact that he uh, accepted it is a confession. I ultimately came away from my interview with him convinced that he had acted out of principle. He did what he believed was best for the country. Uh, as opposed to best for himself. And in fact, the fact that critics who had said that he had done the wrong thing with Nixon, in retrospect, had changed their mind and said that Ford had done the right thing for the country. Were you ever worried that maybe Nixon had done anything else that you didn't know about that you'd be pardoning him for? That was plenty. <laughs> that's, that's wonderful. Uh, so that was enough, then, in other enough words. Enough obstruction of justice. That was, uh, that was ample. <laughs> Just a quick note that the following clip includes graphic descriptions of lynchings. I want you to define a term that you see when you go to the Legacy Museum, when you go to the National Memorial for Peace and Justice, and that is racial terror lynchings. Do I have that right? Yes, that's right. So what we're talking about are lynchings that were designed to terrorize people based on their race. In, I think, popular culture, we have a notion that lynchings were 
what happened when someone was hanged. And of course, lots of lynching victims weren't actually hanged. Uh, they were drowned. They were beaten to death. They were shot. They were burned alive. And so when we talk about lynchings, we're talking about a category of crime committed by groups of people. And racial terror lynchings are murders, crimes committed by groups of people of African Americans to terrorize the African American community. There was mob violence, there was frontier justice in many parts of this country where there was no functioning criminal justice system. If someone did something violent or broke the law, a group might come together to exercise punishment against that person. And in that respect, you would see white people hanged, you'd see other kinds of people hanged, but they weren't trying to terrorize the community. It was typically for a well-known violent crime around which there was some group consciousness that someone had to be punished. Black people were typically lynched in communities where there was a functioning criminal justice system. There was no need for frontier justice. And in fact, hundreds were pulled out of jails and courthouses to be lynched. And these lynchings were violence directed not just at that individual, but at the entire African-American community. Black people were lynched for things like walking too close to a white woman, for asking for better wages, for preaching equality. And these violations, these social transgressions, would be something that could get uh, African-Americans lynched. And that wasn't true for anyone else. So when we talk about racial terror lynchings, we're talking about the racialized violence that was directed at African-Americans following emancipation to reinforce racial hierarchy, to reinforce white supremacy. Uh, they were designed to terrorize. Uh, these bodies uh, would sometimes, the battered bodies would be dragged through black communities. And I was going to, I was going to ask you about that because it wasn't j hanging the, the person wasn't enough. That's right. You, they, they were after hanged, shot, some burned, and as you were about to say, dragged through, dragged through the streets and particularly through black communities. Yes, it was really quite graphic. It was quite torturous. And sometimes people would be castrated or their fingers would be cut off. And this violent, torturous mutilation of the body, shooting the corpse a thousand times, cutting off parts of the body, selling these parts as souvenirs, posing with the body as if there was something to celebrate in this barbarity. Sometimes someone would be positioned near the hanging body and would not allow the black family or black church or black community to come and claim their loved one. They would insist that it hang there for three or four days to terrorize more people. Uh, there are accounts of lynchers tying the body to a vehicle and driving through the black part of town. And if black people went inside and closed their doors, they'd actually force people out of their homes to see these corpses dragged through the streets. And in that sense, it was terrorism. I think when people characterize the violence that we're talking about as a murder, or even as a hate crime, they're not adequately appreciating the scale of it. In talking about terror and terrorism, and the fact that you had people watching these lynchings, in some cases up to or more than 10,000 people. We've seen pictures of people posing, smiling underneath a lynched person. Where's the accountability for those people who are in those photos, who watched what happened is there any way to hold them accountable, even in, a, in, in some moral sense? Yeah. Well, I think it's a really important question. I mean, I think, Jonathan, you've gotten to the heart of why we're trying to do what we do. You cannot engage, participate, look the other way in the face of this kind of spectacle violence and go unharmed, go unchanged. You know, white families would bring their small children and they would lift them up so they could get a better view of this human being being burned to death, this human being being tortured, this human being being mutilated. And the psychic trauma, the scarring, the injury that does to a normal, healthy human being can't really be measured. 
And when we don't express that this is wrong and when we don't hold people accountable, what we do is we create a relationship to these black people that suggests that their victimization is not the same as the victimization of other people. When you hurt black people, when you batter black people, when you beat black people, it's not a crime, it's not bad, it's not even immoral. And that consciousness is, I think, at the heart of what is so troubling about our silence about this history. You know, I make the point often that the people who perpetrated these racial terror lynchings weren't the Ku Klux Klan. They didn't cover their faces. This wasn't done in, in the middle of the night. They could have buried the bodies underground to mask this violence, but instead they did the opposite. They lifted these bodies up. They invited the whole community to come and participate. They sometimes served lemonade and deviled eggs as refreshments while this torture was taking place. And they acculturated communities into accepting this kind of brutality against black people. And the legacy of that, I think, is quite tragic. So accountability, for me, is at the heart of what we're trying to do. We can't go on. We cannot pretend that something really destructive, something really uh, corruptive happened when communities came to celebrate this kind of violence. So we have to talk about it. We have to acknowledge the wrongfulness of it. I think we would benefit as a society if we expressed our shame about it. And everybody was complicit, not just the people who literally showed up and, and, and hanged the person or shot the person or drowned the person. It was all the elected officials who stood out of the way. It was the federal government who did not intervene despite hundreds and hundreds of requests that there be some kind of intervention. It was law enforcement. And the tragedy of that terror, which is still felt in communities today, you know, older people of color come up to me sometimes and they say, Mr. Stevenson, I get angry when I hear somebody on TV talking about how we're dealing with uh, domestic terrorism for the first time in our nation's history after 9-11. They said, we grew up with terror. We had to worry about being bombed and lynched and menaced every day of our lives. And it actually provokes them that our nation is capable of fighting a war on terror sending troops and spending billions to confront the threat posed by terror when our nation did nothing, while millions of people, African-American people, were being terrorized and traumatized by this violence, where they were sending away their loved ones because they couldn't feel safe and secure. And so accountability is at the heart of this. How do we recover from something so brutal, so tragic, so devastating as the legacy, as the evidence of, of brutal violence that is presented by these lynchings. Katie Bitter, it felt like every 15 minutes, uh, the New York Times alerted another um, pretty important development in the story. Take us through your reporting, and then we'll go through um, some of the other things that, that the Times uh, reported on over the weekend. Sure. You know, so we, like other publications, we've just been trying to keep up with the pace of filings and the information. As you mentioned, uh, a judge decided she was inclined to appoint a special master, and the Justice Department just said that much of that work has really already been done. So it'll be interesting to see how she rules. In the meantime, we've seen more developments about how Trump treated information. And inside of the Justice Department, in the piece that I published today, we see that they are really nowhere near to making decision. In the department's own filings, they've said that the investigation is ongoing with the possibility of interviewing more witnesses and taking further investigative steps. But also we know that the, you know, that the career prosecutors doing this investigation have not yet come close to fulfilling their duty to evaluate all of the information they've found and compare it historically to other cases under the same criminal statutes. Once that is complete, and I don't even know if they've begun, but once that's complete, they will make a recommendation to Merrick Garland as to what to do, and then he'll have to decide. Katie, what did we, it feels like some of the national security um, aftershocks or ripple effects are now, at least in a teeny tiny way, public facing. Um, talk about, you know, is there any, what does it look like inside DOJ with a case with such grave national security implications, but also, as you report in your great piece, um, massive political considerations on the criminal side? 
You know, I think that you're seeing conversations happening on at least three fronts. So the first is the investigation itself. What evidence is being found and what does the evidence ask prosecutors to continue to do? What questions have they not yet answered and where do their investigators need to go? A separate set of questions is looking at the information and assessing the true national security risk or harm of having that information live at Mar-a-Lago. Keep in mind, if the Justice Department were to bring any charges against Donald Trump, and the jury and the public saw that information and did not feel that a compelling risk to national security had actually occurred, it could be really difficult to win at trial. So it's not just the classification markings on the documents themselves, it's really what was the risk. Because keep in mind, when Hillary Clinton had classified information on her server, it was about you know drone strike programs that had already been widely reported in the New York Times and in the Washington Post. It was hard to imagine that a jury would have found her guilty of risking national security for having things on her server that had already been reported. And then the third conversation is what are, you know, what does it mean for the Justice Department to prosecute a former president, putting Trump aside? What is that historic question? And what does it do to the credibility of the department? What does it do to presidential power? Should a move like that either be undertaken or declined? You know, if they decline to prosecute Donald Trump for something like obstruction, obstruction of justice, this will be two times under two administrations for which he's been investigated for that crime and then absolved. Harry Lippman, it, it feels like the question, um, and I'm, I'm sure it is being asked in, in both directions, what is the consequence of not prosecuting someone who was so cavalier with state secrets that human intelligence and the kind of intelligence that um, even a president is only supposed to look at in a secure location was shoved in boxes and, and based on this great new post reporting carry, carried around in said boxes from hotel room to hotel room. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of sentiment out there that says no one's above the law. You must treat him like anyone else. If you or I had done that, we would all be prosecuted. That's true. But it, I think it is uh, naive or inadequate. There always was going to be what Katie just identified as the third inquiry. It will be at the end, but there will be questions, as in the Nixon case, what is in the best interests of the country? Now, a lot of people have come around to the view, and this is mine, that given the brazenness, the continuing injury to the body politic, uh, the characteristic sort of megalomania of it what that the only thing worse than not than prosecuting him would be not prosecuting him but that is the inquiry and i think it potentially involves and properly involves the white house but i know for certainly that the doj under merrick garland will first keep everything separate from the national from this national security stuff second go through the standard inquiry under principles of federal prosecution and then and only then grapple with the unprecedented very difficult question what's in the best interests of the country here We've just heard clips today, starting with Pitchfork Economics explaining how we got ourselves into the golden age of white-collar crime. Democracy Now! looked at the latest news from the quest for justice in Flint, Michigan. The Majority Report contemporaneously discussed the Obama administration formally requesting immunity for members of the Bush administration for their war crimes. I also played an excerpt from the famous interview from this week in which Obama explained his desire to look forward rather than backward in search of crimes to prosecute. Democracy Now! around the time of George H.W. Bush's death discussed his role in supporting brutal violence in South and Central America before pardoning those involved in Iran-Contra. Reveal went back to the Nixon tapes and an interview with Gerald Ford and his rationale that the offering of a pardon was a way of eliciting a confession of guilt. Cape Up spoke with Brian Stevenson about the unbridled racial terror lynchings in the United States that went completely unchecked and unpunished. And finally, we just heard from MSNBC earlier this week discussing the factors being weighed in the decision to prosecute Donald Trump. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard bonus clips from the U.S. National Archives explaining the pardons that were offered in the wake of the Civil War. 
And the PBS NewsHour looked at the presidential clemency process and how it can sometimes be used for political purposes. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly to the new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com slash support, or shoot me an email requesting a financial hardship membership because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information. And now to wrap up, just a couple more stories of escaping accountability in a sense. Members heard an in-depth rundown of post-Civil War pardons, but I want to add just a couple more details on Robert E. Lee, the general in charge of the Confederate Army, and Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy. Neither were granted a full pardon after the war, and neither had their citizenship restored before their deaths. But... Whereas Jefferson Davis actually remained defiant to the very end, Robert E. Lee signed an oath to the United States seeking a pardon. In the book Robert E. Lee and Me, which, by the way, I highly recommend as a gift for any friends or relatives of yours who who may be sucked in by the myth of the lost cause, send that book their way. Uh, The book explains Lee's taking the oath this way, quote, By signing the oath, Lee applied for a pardon from President Andrew Johnson. The U.S. Attorney General, James Speed, wrote that, quote, The acceptance of a pardon is a confession of guilt, unquote. Lee might not have believed Speed, but he knew many Southerners did. They would see his oath as evidence that secession was wrong, yet he took it anyway. End quote from that book. And, and this part of the book is, is talking about the absolute highlight of Robert E. Lee's life. The most honorable thing he ever did was to apply for that pardon as, uh, as described in that book. So just like Gerald Ford's reasoning, they saw accepting a pardon as an admission of guilt, which I find interesting because I don't really think that it is seen that way in popular imagination. I certainly always saw it as a a way to correct a miscarriage of justice, right? It's like the the last backstop where someone with total power can say, this is wrong. The justice system did not come to the right conclusion. You should be pardoned because you were found guilty when that is not actually the case. But apparently there are uh, multiple perspectives on that. Jefferson Davis also saw it somewhat similarly, uh, which is why he never applied for a pardon. So, you know, good on him for sticking to his guns. He said in 1881, quote, "'Tis been said that I should apply to the United States for a pardon, but repentance must precede the right of pardon, and I have not repented," unquote. So repentance, sort of another way of admitting guilt, but admitting guilt and being sorry about it. Now, There's a Time article where I I read up a little bit on this, why Jefferson Davis got his U.S. citizenship back. Interesting, right? It is explained why Jimmy Carter, of all people, came to be the one to posthumously pardon Jefferson Davis and restore his full citizenship just two years after Gerald Ford had done the same thing for Robert E. Lee. As I said, Lee had signed an oath to the U.S., but didn't have his full citizenship restored, so Gerald Ford took steps on that. Now, from the article, it says, quote, A century later, it wasn't that Americans in the mid-1970s had suddenly become more supportive of the cause that Davis and Lee fought for. In fact, the civil rights and peace movements were in full force. Yet, some contend, this period of increased political awareness was related to the movement to restore the citizenship of Confederate leaders. Francis McDonnell, a professor of history at Southern Virginia University, argues in a paper on the pardoning of Lee and Davis that, quote, their willingness to oppose the federal government because of principle struck a responsive note in a nation disillusioned by Vietnam, Watergate, and the Church Committee hearings. Ultimately, the national sense that the government had let down, even betrayed, average Americans helped create a favorable climate for legislation extending clemency, end quote. Now, pausing the article for a minute, personally, I find this fascinating, but I I can't quite put my finger yet on how I feel about it. My general thinking about all of the avoided accountability throughout this episode is that 
as a society, we allow people to avoid accountability if imposing a punishment would hurt the feelings of white men. Lynch mobs, obviously, right? Nixon supporters, check. Iran-Contra criminals and their supporters, check. The Bush administration war criminals, and now Trump, check, check, check. White men supporting those movements, those people, those politicians, all the way through. And they weren't just supported by coalitions led by white guys. They were white guys who threatened or are threatening right this very minute to get really mad and potentially commit violence if their leaders were held to account. So Carter decides to pardon Jefferson Davis because of Vietnam, Watergate, and the church committee hearings, according to that historian. Nixon was pardoned, but he was forced from office, which his mostly white and male supporters did not like. The hippies had clearly won the moral argument over Vietnam, and our exit from that war left a mark on the hurt feelings of white guys that would last until at least the John Kerry campaign and the Swift Boat ads. And then finally, the church committee hearings, which focused on COINTELPRO, the counterintelligence program run by the FBI that was used to, quote, track, harass, discredit, infiltrate, destroy, and destabilize dissident groups in the United States, targeting the Communist Party, the Socialist Workers Party, the American Indian Movement, those considered part of the New Left, the KKK, good for them, and most acutely, black civil rights and militant black nationalist groups. End quote. So after all those events, one after the other after the other, the tender feelings of white guys must have just been in tatters after not getting their exclusive way for just a handful of times for basically the first time in history. And that is when Carter feels that he needs to pardon Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy, the unapologetic slavery fetishist, because he thinks that will help soothe the wounds of the country, and by country, I obviously mean white people, because I'm quite certain that pardoning Davis wasn't part of the plan to, say, soothe the feelings of the black civil rights groups who'd been targeted by their own country under COINTELPRO. Now, the only caveat to the pardoning of Jefferson Davis is that he really, really didn't want a pardon. So it could be seen as sort of a clever F.U. to him to wait until he's been dead about 100 years and then pardon him when he can't object, which he definitely would have. That's kind of how I like to think of it, but I sincerely doubt that that's how Carter meant it. He's way too nice of a guy for that. So those are my general feelings about why our society tends to let some powerful people avoid accountability. But as I said, I am not quite sure still how I feel about those pardons in the 70s. Again, from that article, quote, their willingness, meaning Lee Davis and the Confederate States, to oppose the federal government because of principle struck a responsive note in a nation disillusioned by Vietnam, Watergate, and the church committee hearings. Ultimately, the national sense that the government had let down, even betrayed average Americans, helped create a favorable climate for legislation extending clemency, end quote. I can somewhat see it in the other way around as well. It's not contradictory, for instance, to think a person is profoundly wrong in their convictions, but also have some respect for the existence of those convictions. So while pardoning Jefferson Davis seems like an obvious ploy for Democrats to hang on to some portion of the racist vote that had started trending to the GOP, I don't entirely disbelieve that the left of the 70s, who may have been at their peak of hating the U.S. government at that time, may have started to see the Confederates in a slightly different light. Not respect for their terrible, terrible principles, but a sort of respect for principles in general and the willingness to act on them. The Time article concludes by mentioning that, quote, Carter used the same principle when he expanded amnesty for Vietnam draft evaders. As he said at the time, quote, I have a historical perspective about this question. I come from the South. I know at the end of the war between the states, there was a sense of forgiveness for those who had not been loyal to our country in the past, and this same thing occurred after other wars as well. So I think it's okay to conclude 
on the notion that things are complicated, things are complicated, and we should get comfortable in things being complicated. But it does put a finer point on Donald Trump, which is that, at the very least, there is no argument to be made that any of Trump's crimes were committed based on principle. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Brian, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com slash support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcast app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes all through your regular podcast player. And if you'd like to continue the discussion, join our Best of the Left Discord community to discuss the show, the news, other podcasts, articles, videos, books, practically anything you like. A link to join is in the show notes. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors of the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.